Well, you can keep your Bibles right there this morning as we return to the book of Romans today. We've had two weeks off from this study for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but today we return to Romans, Romans chapter 7. Now, since it's been a couple of weeks, I want to start by reminding us of where we've been lately in this book. And for starters, you can take a look again at the first verse that Chris just read from Romans chapter 6. Remember that verse, what shall we say then, Romans 6.1? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So do you remember, do you remember this? What is Romans 6 all about? In one word, it's about sin. In five words, it is about the Christian's relationship to sin. And what exactly is the Christian's relationship to sin? Paul's answer is that Christians have died to sin. How has that happened? Well, we, we died because we're connected to Christ who died. It's through our union with Jesus that we've died to sin and been raised with him to walk in the newness of life. But, but what exactly does Paul mean when he says we're now dead to sin? Because I don't always feel dead to sin, right? What's he getting at? What he's getting at is that sin is no longer our master, no longer our Lord. We now belong to a better master, to a better Lord to the one who's been raised from the dead, to Jesus Christ. We've been set free from sin to serve the Lord Jesus. And then one more question from Romans 6. Why did that need to happen? Why did we need to be set free from sin? If you read through the whole chapter in chapter 6, what you find out is that when someone is a slave to sin or a slave under sin, the fruit that comes out of that person's life is more and more sin, which leads ultimately to one thing, to death. But when a person is set free from sin through Christ, the fruit that will come out of that person's life will be more and more holiness, which will one day give way to eternal life. Now that, that is Romans 6, and I've reviewed that for, for a reason, okay? Because what about Romans 7? We spent one Sunday so far in Romans 7. That was where we were at the last time in this series. Now, what, we only looked at the first six verses of the chapter, and what did they say? What were they about? I want to go back and look at them. Romans 7 now. Look at the first six verses. Okay, Romans 7. Paul asks another question, like he did at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know, brothers because I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as that person lives. For, and then he gives an illustration. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And so accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's still alive. But... 
if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. And then here's Paul's point. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So you can belong to another. To whom? To the one who's been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, the members of our body, to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter or of the written code. Now, I want to run back through very similar questions, okay, about this text as what I asked about chapter 6, but I'll pretty much change one word most of the time, okay? What is Romans 7 about? In, in one word or maybe two. Romans 7 is about the law, or in five or six words, it's about the Christian's relationship to the law. Now, just to be clear, what law are we talking about? Not like the law in the U.S., but what law, what law code is Paul thinking about? He's talking specifically about the law of Moses, right? The law code that God gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, which is summarized, the whole big law code is summarized in what? In the Ten Commandments, which we just read earlier. And remember, by the time Paul's writing... That one law code has been governing God's people for like 1,500 years in a row. And so as we talked about last time, even though this question of like, how does the law of Moses relate to us doesn't always seem so like important in our lives today, it's hard to think of a question that would have been more important or more of a live question and debate and discussion in the early church than this one. Because now all of these Jesus followers don't seem to do a lot of the stuff that's written in that law code. Why not? What's the Christian's relationship to the law? And and this was especially questioned for churches like those in Rome, which were a mix of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And they were trying to figure out how to live with one another. And a big question for them, maybe the biggest question was, how do we live together from these different backgrounds in relation, and how do we relate to this law that governed some of us for all of our lives up until this point? What is our relationship to the law of Moses? So what does Paul do in Romans 7? He takes an entire chapter to talk about that. That's why this chapter is the most important chapter in the whole New Testament on the law. More specifically, on the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. So like when you read... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What are you looking for when you read it? When you, and this is where, if you're doing like a read through the Bible plan, you know, you get tripped up, you know, like in the latter part of Exodus or in Leviticus. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? How does any of this relate to me? Does it relate to me? What am I supposed to draw from it? These are the kinds of things you can think about when you're looking at this text. So then, What is the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses? What's Paul's answer? We just read it. 
Christians have died to the law of Moses. Well, how did that happen? How did we die? Did you see verse 4? What does he say? Through the body of Christ. In other words, we died because we're connected to Christ who died. So then, what does that mean about our relationship to the law of Moses? It means we're no longer under the law of Moses. Or as Paul says in verse 6, we've been released from the law of Moses. It has no claim on us. It's not what reigns over God's people anymore. But here's the bigger question. Why did that need to happen? I mean, Paul's talking about being free from the law of Moses as if that's a good thing. But wasn't it a good thing to have the law of Moses? And not a bad thing, right? I mean, I thought the law was a blessing from God to his people, not a curse on his people. So how can Paul say that dying to it and being set free from it is a good thing? The short answer is what Paul said in verses 4 through 6. The long answer is everything he says in the rest of the chapter, where we're going to be today. Look at the short answer again. Verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So that you could belong to another. To who? To the one who's been raised from the dead. Who's that? To Jesus. But why? In order that we may bear fruit now for God. Because what was life like under the law? That's what verse 5 says. For when we were in the flesh... Our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they bore fruit in our lives for what? For death. That's why we needed to be released from it, so we could actually serve God today. So, why do we need to be set free from the law? Paul's short answer would be because when somebody's a captive under the law, the fruit that comes out of their life leads to more and more Sin, which leads ultimately to one thing, to death. But when somebody's set free from the law, now they're able to serve God and bear fruit for God through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that up until that point right there in this sermon, this can all seem sort of distant or perhaps a little hard to connect to life. And I wonder if we might even have some doubts about whether life under the law was really that bad. I mean, Paul seems to say it was, but was it really that rough? After our text today, I don't think we'll be in doubt anymore. Why? Because the entire rest of the chapter, Paul is going to illustrate or shed light on exactly what life under the reign of the law is like when all you've got to rely on is you or when all I've got to depend on is I. Now, we've taken some time to review. I wanted to bring us back up to speed, but I also wanted us to think about chapter 6 and chapter 7 side by side. Because did you notice what Paul did? 
everything he says about sin in chapter 6, he says about what in chapter 7 at the beginning? He says about the law. And so what question do you think everyone would ask? Romans 7, verse 7. Look at it. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? That's the obvious question. I mean, if I keep saying everything about sin, and, then, and I say the same thing about the law, eventually somebody's going to ask, what are, you, what are you actually saying? Is the law that God gave actually sinful? Is it sin? How do you suppose Paul, a Jewish man, is going to answer that? By no means, right? May it never be. The law is not equal to sin, and the law is not sinful. But here's the real question. How's Paul going to prove that? How's he going to defend the goodness of the law? Look at verse 7 again, and you're going to have to pay careful attention, or else you'll, you'll actually miss this, okay? So we're going to read through the next verses. Like, how's he going to defend the goodness of the law? Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said don't covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life deceived me, you know, and, 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 uh, and I died. Right? And the very commandment that, pro that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, to be honest, that does not sound like too great of a defense of the law right there. You might be like, Paul, you should not become a defense attorney. Because it was really hard in there to actually see how he was defending the law. But I would actually say that's what he was doing in that text. For example, he says in verse 7, I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said to me, don't covet. What's he getting at? Is the law sin? No, but what does the law do to sin? It exposes it and it reveals it for what it is. He says, I wouldn't have known covetousness if the law hadn't told me don't covet. The law is not sinful, but it does expose and reveal sin. And that is actually a good thing. That's the first part of what he says, but that's not all he says. Because how does he portray the law and sin in this text? Or think of this way. What does sin do with the law of Moses? What does sin, in this case, do with that command from the law? Don't covet. Did you notice what it does? What, what does sin see in the, in the good command of God? Sin sees an opportunity. To do what? To kill. I mean, think about it. The command comes to a sinner. Do not covet. And what happens? Sin, because sin's like being like personified like a, a master, sees the opportunity to go after you. And sin seizes 
the opportunity through that commandment to do what? To stir up what's in your heart so that you'll want to covet all kinds of stuff. All right, that's what this text is saying. Now, if you don't understand how this works, just listen to this command, okay, from me. I don't want anyone in this room to touch their faces. No face touching. No hair, no face. Okay. No, is it, as a speaker, regular, you know, as a regular speaker, one of the things you find out is that we are perpetual face touchers. Like if you just, you know, would have this video of this room and just put it on speed, you'd see people doing this all the time. Okay, this is, what, this is what happens. Now, I say no more. Don't get your hands down. Now, I don't know, some of you might be like me and start to feel itchy. <laughs> like you really want to do this. Okay, why is that? Okay, or, or think of a different scenario. So try telling a young child, I'm going to call child Bob, right? So little Bob, little Bob, do not touch these cookies. They are for our company that's coming over tonight. Now, I tell little Bob this. It's very possible that little Bob had never even noticed the cookies before. And perhaps never would have. But once you lay down that law, no touching cookies, what happens in little Bob's heart? Now think of this. Is he more or less likely to touch the cookies? Now, perhaps little Bob won't actually touch them because of fear of consequences. But I can say pretty confidently that little Bob will want to touch them more after the law's been laid down. Why? This is the condition of the human heart. This is a sign of human weakness. But these sort of humorous, mundane examples only illustrate what happens when God's law comes down on the heart of a sinner. When God says, do not covet, what happens? It leads to even more coveting. Why? It's because of human weakness, but not just that. It's because of the overwhelming power of sin. This is the power of sin. Think about it. What is it that gives sin its strength? Maybe you've heard Paul say this in another text. The power of sin is the law. Apart, or as he says here, apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's like a sleeping lion, perhaps. But when the commandment comes near to a sinner, what happens? Sin springs to life, deceives, and kills. And what does all of this show us about the law of Moses? The answer might surprise us. Verse 12. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did you see that coming? Maybe if you looked at the, at the text, you saw that. But would you have thought that was what the point was? But this is a reminder of what Paul's doing. He's defending the goodness of the law. He's cleared it from all blame. Why? Because what is the actual problem? The problem is not the law. What is the problem? 
the power of sin, and the weakness of I. The law is not to blame for humanity's problems. Sin's to blame and we're to blame. But maybe we still don't agree with this. I mean, because after all, Paul said that the law that promised life proved to be death to me. And this is the question he comes at in verse 13. Look at verse 13. So did that which is good, and what do you think that is? Did that which is good. Did the law then bring death to me? Am I supposed to blame the law for why there's death everywhere around me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. It's the same sort of thing. The law isn't the problem. The law is good. The law is spiritual. It's from God, but what's the actual problem? The problem is sin. And the problem is the overwhelming power of sin. And the problem is me. I am the problem. And this is how it goes all the way throughout the, throughout the chapter. This, through the whole chapter, Paul wants you to know, what do I think about the law of Moses? I think the law is good and holy and righteous. But under that, there is a constant theme going on throughout this chapter. Paul is doing something else. On the one hand, he's defending the law. He says, I love the law. I grew up with it. It's holy and it's righteous and good. But on the other hand, what is Paul doing the whole chapter? He is critiquing the law on one major point. What's his critique of the law? What's the problem with the law of Moses? The problem is that the law is weak. Or let me put it this way. The law is good, but that doesn't mean it can make you good. This is the weakness of the law. The law on its own has never been able to deliver even one person in human history from sin. The law is good, but it's never had the power on its own to make even one person good. This is Paul's critique of the law. Sin's too strong, I'm too weak, and the law can't help me. The law is powerless to deliver me from the power of sin. In fact, the law is the very thing that gives sin such power to kill. That's why we had to be put to death to it and freed from it. Because when the law reigns over people, sin has a heyday. When the law reigns, sin reigns. This is Paul's take. And if you want to see that in the most personal terms, all you need to do is read the experience of the I in this text. And you will see what life under the law is like when all you've got to rely on is you. Or when all you've got to trust in is I. Look at verse 14, and we're going to read through it. You want to see what that's like? Verse 14, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want to do. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good, So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it. 
but sin that dwells within me. What kind of life is that like? <clears throat> Perhaps we read that and we think, that has been my life. On many occasions, I felt that way too. But what kind of life is this? This kind of life is one of frustration, failure, defeat, desperation, and despair. That's what life under the law is like when all you've got to depend on is you. Why? It's because the law cannot help you. It cannot deliver. The law of God can tell you all day long what is good and what you ought to do. But in the end, it cannot give you the power to do it. And so this sad scene is what life under the law looks like. And now I want to look at the final paragraph where Paul starts to play with the word law a little bit. If you've ever read this text, you'll see what I mean. You'll know what I mean. And then he leads it to the finish. Verse 21 says, So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, the members of this body, another law, another power, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law or the power of sin that's dwelling in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Is there anything or anyone who's able to deliver a desperate man like this, who sees his own sinfulness and has grown to hate it, but who can't find a way out? Is anyone able? And what's Paul's answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is one who is able to deliver, and it is not Moses, and it is not you. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Paul summarizes at the end of verse 25 what he's been saying. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is a powerful chapter. I think it's one that connects deeply with our hearts and our experiences. But as we read it, I think we eventually start to wonder, like, what am I supposed to do with it? And I wonder if you've been wondering, who is the I in the text? If you're not aware of this, this has been like debated for hundreds of years. So let me just say a few things about this. First thing, I've illustrated the whole sermon. First thing, you don't have to identify the I in this text to know the main point of this text. I tried to illustrate that today by not talking about that, the whole sermon. Okay. This passage is about how the law is powerless to free you from the power of sin. It's about how the law is good, but how it cannot make you good. I'm too weak, sin's too strong, and the law can't help me. I have to look somewhere else for rescue. But having said that, it is a legitimate question to ask, is Paul describing himself in this text? I mean, he says I, after all. Is he describing himself? And if it is Paul, is he describing like his life, the day that he's writing it, as an apostle, 
as a Christian, or is he describing like the experiences? He's looking back at his life as a Jew until he came to Jesus, like, or, or, or is he describing other people in this? Like, what what is going on? This is a legitimate question, <laughs> and there are very strong arguments for lots of different positions. So, what do I think? All right, first, I think it's fair to say Paul is describing his own experience to some degree here, but also that he's not simply trying to tell you this is only what happened to me or only what I feel like. He is using, I think, himself as a picture of the experience of many, many people throughout human history. And that's why, second, this text connects to basically all people at all t- in, in human history at some point. For example, when we read this text, did you or do you perhaps imagine the Garden of Eden when you read this text. I actually hear that when I read it. I mean, after all, Adam and Eve were alive there in the garden doing well, and then God's commandment comes, and what happens? Sin, or, or maybe that text, Satan springs up, seizes the opportunity through that commandment to deceive and to kill them. Like, wow, that sounds just like this. Or, or maybe you thought, you know, that sounds a lot like the history of Israel. Like they come to Mount Sinai and they're doing pretty well. And then the law's loud thunder and God speaks and does it help them? Does it deliver them? No. In fact, if you read the story of Israel, I think arguably they're worse afterwards than they are before. Or, or you might read it and think, you know, I, I feel like this was my life before I came to Christ. Like, I, I wanted to be free. But I just, I couldn't find deliverance. And I was like that, crying out. Who, is, is anyone able? Or maybe you say, you know, I, there are certain things in my life even now. Not everything, but some things where I, I feel that way still. Different battles that I face where sometimes I have felt like I cannot do what God has called me to do. This, I think, is, is the case. And, and so, I think we can make good cases for saying the I is exactly this or exactly that, but I'm actually not sure that was Paul's main intention. Instead of trying to describe himself at any one point in life, I think Paul is maybe trying to describe every person's experience when they hear God's law, when it comes home to their hearts, and they look at the law, and, at, and then they look within. And they rely on themselves that this will be what they experience. Or maybe I could say it this way. This is, this is maybe describing every person's experience when they hear God's law, and they look not to Christ, and his spirit, but when they look at the law and then they look within. Whether you're a Christian or not, this can happen, where we fail to look up to Christ and depend on the power of God's spirit. And do you know what will happen inevitably if you do that? You will find yourself agreeing with what God says and even wanting to do it to some degree, but you'll find yourself unable to do it. 
Why? It's because sin's too strong and I'm too weak and the law can't help me. But I will say this. This is not, in my view, this is not how God intends his people to live. This is not how God wants his son's bride to live. God did not find us only to leave us on our own to fend for ourselves. And God certainly has not left us in the same condition we were in when he found us. Think about what he said in Romans 7, verse 6. He says, We've been released from the law, having died to what held us captive, so that we can serve God not in the oldness of the letter, not in the strength of I, but how? In the new way of the Spirit. And you'll notice throughout this entire section, there is not one reference to the Spirit of God. But as soon as you get out of this chapter... It'll be hard to find a verse for a long time where it's not about the Spirit of God. This is not, I think, the, the normal Christian experience. This is actually what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ and the Spirit and we look within, inevitably, we will find ourselves failing because there is no strength within and there is not power in the law. There's only power in Christ, and this is why we've been set free. So in the end, what's the application from the chapter? Whether you agree exactly with my take on some of, like the I or not, I think the primary application of this is actually about what not to do. When you hear God's commands, do not lean on your own strength or your own understanding. That has been a failed strategy since the Garden of Eden. Rather, trust in the Lord with all your heart and walk by the Spirit. This is the one and only way to live how God has called us to live. And then especially, I think, for those of us who are parents, when you give God's commands to your children... Remind them when they're struggling with them not to look within or even to look primarily to you, but to look ultimately to Jesus and to the power of his spirit. And finally, I would add this as well. When you are at rock bottom and you've realized the many failures of your life and the inability that you have to deliver yourself from sin. And when you're crying out, whether with words or with the groans of your heart, who will deliver me from this dying body? Remember, there is an answer to that question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As the old saying goes, I love this, is, there's thought of it, whether it's from John Bunyan or another John, way back when. Maybe you've heard this. Run, John, run. The law commands. But gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it, and it gives us wings. That, that would be a good picture of Romans chapter 7. Let's pray.